From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, Elon Musk is now the richest person on the planet. More than half the satellites in space are owned and controlled by one man. Starting his own artificial intelligence company. Well, he's a legitimate super genius. I mean, legitimate. He says he's always voted for Democrats, but this year it will be different. He'll vote Republican. There is a reason the U.S. government is so reliant on him. Elon Musk is a scam artist, and he's done nothing. Anything he does yeah. is fascinating to yeah. people. Welcome to Elon Inc., where we discuss Elon Musk's vast corporate empire, his latest gambits and antics, and how to make sense of it all. I'm your host, David Papadopoulos. I really thought we'd talk about Cybertruck this week, and we will, I promise. But first, I'm sure you've seen the videos and photos. On Monday, Elon Musk put on body armor to take a tour of an Israeli kibbutz that was attacked on October 7th. Speaking to Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on X, he offered to help rebuild Gaza. Those are a crazy couple of sentences. The head of six cutting-edge companies took his private jet to the site of a Hamas massacre just miles from an active war zone. It raises a lot of questions. What is Musk doing? Why? What is he trying to accomplish? To discuss his trip to Israel, we brought in Marissa Newman, our Israeli tech reporter, Marissa, thanks for making time for us. We know you've been very, very busy. Thank you. And Max Chapkin, senior reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek. Hey. Then we'll dig into all things Cybertruck with longtime Tesla reporter Dana Hull. Okay, Israel. Marissa, what was Elon Musk doing there? So officially he was here for a solidarity visit um, during the war. He toured a kibbutz in the south on the Gaza border that was the site of one of the massacres. But the context of his visit came after he was embroiled in another anti-Semitism scandal when he endorsed a tweet that was anti-Semitic. And the last time that he had been in a similar situation, he met Netanyahu. Netanyahu traveled to California. And, and this visit was also seen as sort of a way to, to, to walk himself out of the latest scandal. Now, now, Marissa, you, during that last meeting they had in September in California, you were there, correct? Yeah. And, and what was it like then, and how uh, was that different than now? So at the time, Netanyahu said to him, you know, we hope that within the confines of the First Amendment, you'll fight anti-Semitism on X. And then that gave Musk sort of the platform to say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a post-anti-Semitism, I'm post-racism in any form. And during this visit, they had sort of a spaces conversation on X and anti-Semitism didn't, didn't come up at all. 
Musk also met with the Israeli president and another cabinet member, and they brought up anti-Semitism, but they spoke generally about combating anti-Semitism on X. They didn't directly confront him about his own actions. So it definitely, from Netanyahu's point of view, it, it wasn't a focus. But now, Max, we do know that uh, Musk has done some tweeting or, or Xing about about his most recent imbroglio. Yeah, yeah. So as as Marissa uh, says, these Netanyahu meetings were clearly, uh, you know, part of an effort by Elon Musk to say, you know, how could I be an anti-Semite? I'm, I'm like good friends with the, you know, the leader of Israel. He has all along, besides these two meetings, he's had a, a very kind of steady drumbeat of interviews, essentially claiming that, you know, he's not an anti-Semite. He, he went on Ben Shapiro's show. He said mm. that he's, you know, Jewish in the kind of George Santos way. He yesterday, uh, while this was going on, one of his fans said, you know, I hope this uh, puts a rest to the to these, you know, rumors that Elon Musk is anti-Semitic. And Musk responded, yeah, I hope so, too. I'm paraphrasing here, but but essentially endorsed that. So he's more or less said that that was one of his goals here. I think there are real questions about whether it will achieve what he wants to achieve. Because, of course, you know, there's an Israeli audience and then there's a U.S. audience. And, and, and it's that U.S. audience uh, of advertisers in particular who are, you know, st- still concerned about extremist content on X and the possibility that their ads will will show next to it. So, Marissa, how has Musk been received there in Israel? So Musk was received warmly by politicians, with the exception of the Israeli president uh, sort of bringing up anti-Semitism as an issue. There's been just a wave of world leaders who have been visiting Israel. And among Israelis, there's a certain appreciation uh, for for those visits, those wartime visits. On the other hand, there definitely is a lot of criticism over both disinformation on X and conspiracy theories about the war that are that are not being curbed. I mean, we should also say that like there is this thread of Elon Musk's endorsement of an you know anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but Elon Musk also just generally likes to throw himself into the mix when there is a big yeah global controversy. You know, he vowed to fix the Flint water system uh, during the water crisis. He inserted himself into the the, the Thai Thai cave cave uh, rescue. This is a guy who, you know, likes to be the main character. And and of course, uh, that gets him in trouble a lot of the time. But I think, you know, he often does this thing, which world leaders also do, which is, hey, there's a big conflict. Let me put myself yeah, right this in the is, middle this of is, it. This is geopolitical Elon, right? The, 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 sovereign, the, the sovereign republic of, of Elon Musk. All right. So, Marissa, so what other uh, global CEOs have shown up on in Israel and gotten this kind of tour from Benjamin Netanyahu? None. President Biden was here. He got a warm welcome. World leaders were here, but no CEOs. Obviously, this is very unusual. And it's it's worth pointing out that Netanyahu went down south to do this tour with him. Taking away from what is presumably a fairly busy agenda, no? Yeah, I mean, there's a ceasefire, so. <laughs> but definitely, definitely, it's the middle of a war. And there are hostage exchanges every night. And and Netanyahu was in the South giving Musk the tour of the kibbutz. Right. So, Max, it, that really does, though, speak again to to the power of the geopolitical Elon and, 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 the, and the influence he wields. You once ranked him if you were a country. You said you were barely top 200. That's crazy. He's <laughs> totally 
totally top 200. I mean, he's he's the richest person in the world, so so that gives him a certain status. He operates all these companies. Also, he's got a unique willingness, a a Kardashian-level appetite to be in the middle, middle of the storm. And obviously, Netanyahu has something to gain by 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 showcasing a relationship with Elon Musk. And and so you have a, this kind of mutual trade which we've seen other world leaders make, you know, in in the UK, you know, and elsewhere. It'll, it'll it will continue where where Elon Musk is able to command these audiences and it's in everybody it's in both sides interest to to show that he is of this status and that they are able to attract, you know, the great the world's great industrialist as they see it to their country. And and at the same time, right, there's this possibility that Starlink uh, is going to become a, a government contractor. It's going to offer its its Internet services uh, to governments. And, and so maybe there's a, a dual purpose here with this visit, uh, both in terms of potentially marketing Starlink and, and, and making contacts with yeah. the Israeli government and also trying to say, like, how could I be anti-Semitic if I, you know, right. have friends? Look at my Jewish friend over here. How could I be an anti-Semite? Right. So. Two birds with one stone. Now, Marissa, Starlink, his his uh, satellite unit uh, within SpaceX, it came up to a certain extent during this visit? It did come up. Early on in the war, the Israeli communications ministry said that they were interested in Starlink to back up Israel's communications during the war. And then a, a few weeks later, Musk tweeted that he would be willing to give Gaza international aid organizations in in Gaza access to um, Starlink, which immediately infuriated the Israelis who said that that would be exploited by Hamas. Then Musk walked it back, said, oh, no, we wouldn't do that without sort of the approval of the Israeli defense establishment and the U.S. Department of Defense. And then on the morning of his visit, while he was sort of in the south with Netanyahu touring this kibbutz, the communications minister said that they had reached some sort of understanding under which Israel would control Starlink in Israel and in Gaza. That doesn't seem to be a, a done deal, Starlet. You know, no one on Musk's side has confirmed that. And the ministry is saying that it's an understanding, mm. but it's not it's not final. But they're def- it's definitely something that's that's coming up in the talks and is part of this got it. tour as well. Got it, got it. So no concrete deal yet, but Max in general, conflict has been very good for for Starlink's business, yes? Well, and, and it's been very good for SpaceX's business. I mean, people forget this, but SpaceX is a massive defense contractor, and Starlink, the satellite unit, which you know we and others have reported, is you know at least considering an IPO, moving towards an IPO uh, via some kind of spinoff, you know, it would be a natural way for this company to, you know, get more revenue and also do a thing that Elon Musk is good at, which is, you know, kind of court governments uh, and, and, and convince them to give him, write him very large checks. And so last thing. So he is right. Elon fancies himself this world leader and other world leaders seem eager and keen to make time for him. Why, Marissa, does Benjamin Netanyahu make time for him and entertain him? And, and by the way, I think it was right. It was no small deal when they went to the to 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 effectively, you know, a place that was just miles from an active war zone. What's in it for him? Well, originally, when he went to California, it, it came in sort of at the height of protests in Israel over his judicial reforms, and, and that was being led by the tech community. And at the time, Netanyahu was very keen to show that he's tech friendly, that he's sort of he cast himself as the person who built Israel's tech economy. And so that embrace with Musk at the time was 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 sort of framed around that. And I think that's still something that he's looking for. He's you know, the Israeli government has sort of spoken about trying to get Musk to invest in AI in Israel to sort of 
have a presence in Israel. And I think that's something that continue, those talks are, are ongoing. And one of the meetings Musk had when he was here was with tech entrepreneurs, with cybersecurity um, officials in Israel. There's also the question of, does this help Elon Musk? We should say, first of all, Musk has denied, and we've said this on other podcasts, has denied that he's anti-Semitic, that this is an entirely just like a bogus media conspiracy. I think like the, the, it's, it's unlikely that this is going to make much of a dent either in the advertising boycott or in the like larger narrative about him. I mean, you know, we're, we've, we're seeing essentially a similar strategy to, to one that Donald Trump deployed, right, where he was, he was very close to um, Netanyahu and also very unpopular among American Jews. And, it, and so it's not necessarily like those two things, they don't necessarily go together. Right. It's yeah. not clear that anyone's going to buy this. It's, it's a pretty weak defense of the of the bad tweet that he did when he could he still could just apologize and and of course he's not doing that yeah it's not it's not on brand and he's not doing it nor do i suspect will he listen marissa thank you very much for your time thank you we'll have you on again soon from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Okay, we're back and joining me and Max now is Dana Hull. Dana, welcome back. Good morning. So Dana, when I woke up this morning, and as I always do, I went right to my Bloomberg terminal. The number one red story this morning was your story. Musk's Cybertruck is already a production nightmare for Tesla. It is indeed. These things are hitting the road. What's gone so wrong? Why is it taken so long for them to get it here? And what does it look like going forward in terms of them ramping up output? Yeah, so I think what's interesting to me is that, as you all may remember, Musk first unveiled this Cybertruck four years ago in November of 2019. And that was the big event where you know, it was like this huge viral event. They sort of unveiled the truck. People were kind of aghast and shocked at how weird it looked. They tried to prove that the glass was shatterproof and they threw like a mallet or a ball at it and the glass shattered and it went viral. It was like this incredible, incredible event. Oh my God. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. Four years later, the night, you know, we're finally going to actually see the vehicles like handed over to the first trusted customers. It'll probably be a mix of like employees and friends of Elon. And so Tesla is having this big event on Thursday to kind of do the handover of the very first Cybertrucks. And in the meantime, Cybertrucks have shown up in showrooms. So I went on Sunday to go see one uh, at a showroom here in the Bay Area. And, you know, the Cybertruck is like surrounded Mm. by ropes and everyone's like crammed in, like taking selfies of it. And so it's like the vehicle exists, like you can go see them. So there there, there was a big there was a big crowd. Oh, yeah, it was a big it was a big like uh, Black Friday shopping thing. It was a big way for Uh. Tesla to get folks into the showroom. But simultaneously, everything that Elon Musk has said about the Cybertruck, just like 
gives me the spidey sense that things are not going well. And the wonderful thing about Elon as a CEO is that he's remarkably frank, almost frank to a fault. And on the last earnings call, he just went on and on about how the Cybertruck is going to be really hard to make. Uh, It's going to take blood, sweat, and tears to get it to volume production. He went so far as to say that they dug their own grave. We dug our own grave with Cybertruck. Nobody digs a grave better than themselves. When he does say that, when he says things like, we dug our own grave, which, by the way, Max, in terms of hopping on a on a call with investors and saying something like that about a product you're about to release, that's pretty unusual, no? Well, I mean, I think he's trying to manage expectations because from the sort of like Tesla bull point of view, the Cybertruck has a lot of potential. You got to remember, like, big picture here, Tesla has has been struggling or at least managing demand. Like, how much do customers really want these cars? They've sold so many Model 3s. And this is a car that's been on the market, and and model-wise, the the SUV version of the Mm -hmm. Model 3. This is a car that's been on the market for a really long time. You know, there's a potential for sort of fatigue, right? You're basically talking about a sensible, you know, smallish car. Uh, It's not the kind of thing that people are getting really excited about. On top of that, you have Elon Musk kind of every day going on Twitter and saying stuff that is, you know, edgy or borderline, you know, racist, as we discussed earlier. And and so like that, these things are all, you know, arguably harming demand for these cars. Meanwhile, you have this brand new design. It's really snazzy. It's in a category that, you know, obviously moves a lot of numbers. Trucks are a bigger category than cars uh, in the United States. So so this is like a huge opportunity. And I think Elon Musk has been trying diligently to get investors to understand that, yes, while he sees the opportunity, it's a long-term opportunity, not something that's going to happen in the next year. Yeah. Now, Dana, when he came up with this super... Uh, unique design, I think inspired in part by one of his children. Um, What is the profile of the buyer that he had in mind? As a truck owner myself, uh, I do not see myself changing, turning in my Chevy Colorado anytime soon for a Cybertruck. Who is the buyer of this vehicle? Well, that's the big question, right? So the truck market in the United States, it's pretty formulaic. You have some big brands like the Ford F-150, the <laughs> the Chevy Silverado, and, you know, trucks kind of look the same. And like every new truck is basically an iteration of the very basic design with better specs. And this is like a category defining vehicle. Will the contractor who needs to like haul lumber to their job site, like drive this thing? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of questions about... What is the actual, we don't know the specs yet, and we don't know the, the range, and we don't know the price. Like Those yeah. are sort of, sort of big unknowns that I presume we'll get on Thursday. When I think about trucks, I feel like I break them down and, and truck buyers into two categories. Those who buy trucks for the utility of them, and then those who buy trucks for the statement and the look. Uh, I don't. In, I can't envision anybody who's a truck buyer who's looking for the utility of the vehicle, it's hauling and so on and so forth, even though, of course, I know the Cybertruck can do those things, is looking to, hey, let me get me, let me, let me plunk down X amount of dollars for that thing. To me, it's almost more like your buyer is like the buyer who bought Hummers years ago, right? The other thing to remember about the truck market is that like half of it is fleet sales, like, you know, AT&T, utility workers, uh, you know, like PG&E. Mm. I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of these true. a lot of a lot of truck, a lot of trucks are bought by corporate fleets. And so I don't think that the Cybertruck is going to appeal to that buyer. So you've got sort of the consumer who's buying it as a lifestyle statement, you know, 
I mean, it will have a certain appeal. There are definitely fanboys and and Tesla fans. You know, who will buy this thing? But how many? How many are we talking about? That fleet buyer is precisely to the point. That that fleet buyer is absolutely a utility buyer. It's yes. the utility of the vehicle, yes. right? Utility you buyers, you know, if, if like if a corporation wants to buy a bunch of trucks for their contractors or their workers, they, they tend to want to buy like them in bulk. They want to make sure that the parts are there to fix them if needed. They want to have a qu- pretty quick turnaround time in case there's any maintenance issues. Like they are not going to be plunking down to buy this vehicle in high numbers anytime soon. And I, I don't even think the fleet buyer is, is part of the equation at all. So it's consumers. Is it the LA guy who wants to pretend that he's Mad Max on the freeways of Southern California? Is it the Texas person? Um, you know, and there's all these like bells and whistles that they keep talking about. Like it's bulletproof or you can sling an arrow at it. Like, do you need that? Like, does, does is that something that the, that the, that the American consumer actually needs? So it's, it seems like it's it's you know they they're obsessing about these things that like I wasn't really aware that the average American truck buyer was crying out for a bulletproof vehicle. Like maybe may, totally. maybe I'm maybe I'm an optimist about the state <laughs> of the world, but yeah, who who buys this is a, is a very interesting question. There will be buyers, no question, but I think it's going to be pretty niche, just like the Model X. If you're reading Cat Turd and you're watching those SpaceX <laughs> launches, you are going to buy a Cybertruck. But but the truth is, that is a narrow constituency. The big constituency are these kind of sensible car buyers, and that is a group he is not speaking to right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I have another question for you, Dan, and your piece today does indeed get at this a lot. Let's pretend indeed that demand for these vehicles is booming. And by the way, demand for for EVs in general, including some EV trucks from Ford and Chevy, is kind of seems a little spotty, but let's pretend it does boom. Um, Can they ramp and scale up output as needed to meet that demand. Well, that's what he's warned is going to be very, very slow. And I think that when Elon Musk says something's going to be hard, like, listen to him. Like, this guy has done this before. And what's fascinating is that it's like, it's almost like they're repeating the same mistake that they made with the Model X. They've they've sort of fell in their sword and finally admitted the Model X you know, had too much new technology, that it was a victim of Tesla's own hubris. And now here he is, like, on an earnings call, telling investors very clearly, like, we're about to go through production hell all over again. We dug our own grave. This is a unique, complex vehicle. It's going to take 18 months till we get anywhere close to volume production. So, you know, I think it'll be very interesting to see who gets these first vehicles on Thursday at the big handover event. And then when Tesla reports sales in quarterly sales in January, like, how many Cybertrucks do they deliver in the fourth quarter? Is it 10? Oh, it's going to be very is it, few. Is it like it's, 10? Yeah, is it 15? Um, and, you know, eventually they will get there. But it's not just the steel. It's like 
all these new things. Like they're using their in-house battery cells. It's 800 volt architecture. There's like an oval steering wheel. There's like, you know, dynamic suspension. I mean, there's a lot of like cool things that I think are cool, but like in aggregate to make sure that all those thing, cool things are working. It's just like a lot of little engineering issues that are going to continue to crop crop up until they smooth it out. And I mean, that's what happens whenever you launch a new vehicle. It's just surprising to me that at this stage in the company's development that they've chosen to go with a vehicle that seems to just be saddled with so many things yeah. that could go wrong. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny because one thing we, we should remember is that in the Isaacson book on Musk, it came out, Dana, right, that designers at Tesla were so freaked out by this design and so unnerved by the design that they were secretly plotting to build and design their own truck, right? right. Yeah, that was a, that was a big chapter in the Isaacson book. And it's it's hard not to look at this and think, okay, this had like a focus group of one. And that one person happens to be the head <laughs> of the company. Like, and I would love to know, like Tesla engineers, if you're listening, like, did you focus group this with like tech, with truck buyers in Michigan and Ohio and, and Texas? Like, he never, must never does. No. He never does focus groups, right? Not usually. So it, it, this seems like one of those things where like Elon, Elon sort of, he gets obsessive about certain details. Like with the Model X, he was, he had to have these Falcon wing doors. And like every engineer at the company yeah. was like, oh my God, these doors are such a pain in the ass. But like Elon was insisting on them. It seems like with the Cybertruck, he's like insisting on certain elements. And, you know, I don't know what the design discussions were like. Those doors, for I got to just remind everybody, that car, the X that Dan has been talking about, it was supposed to be the sensible, it was supposed to be the minivan, Tesla's minivan. It's mm. a big, it's a three row kind of hybrid SUV. You know, it's for families. It was the family car. And they designed these crazy doors that like literally only appeal to like a very narrow subset of childless man, right? Like you have to be like a, like very versed in the yeah. you know automotive details of sports cars and like Back to the Future for this to make sense. And we're kind of seeing the same thing all over again. And the crazy thing, as Dana points out, is Musk has acknowledged this. He's talked about how this was a mistake. These were not things that people actually wanted. It was a mistake to sell you know basically moms and dads on these psychotic yeah, doors that didn't that, that so, didn't work that well just look at the chart that's in our story today it took them so long to ramp the x and then the x has never been a big seller um now the model y is this huge hit but the model y is like does not have those crazy doors and the model y is awesome like whenever i rent a tesla from hertz i always rent a model y i think it's a fantastic car but it's like simple and so like, why, like, if you're going to make a truck, if you're going to enter the highly competitive truck market, like, okay, you, you want it to look like a Blade Runner thing, fine. But, like, why add in all the bells and whistles? Like, Musk called it, like, an insane, I think he called it an insane technology bandwagon. Like, why complicate it for yourself? Like, why make it harder? Because he loves the challenge, I suppose, to a certain degree. Let me ask you this as we wrap up here on the Cybertruck. If it were to fail, Dana Hull, and be a bust and a flop, either because the demand's not there or because they can't scale it. How big a deal is it to Tesla and to Tesla's stock price? That's a good. That's a good question. I think that investors tend to be pretty forgiving of Tesla, and I think that Musk has really tempered expectations for this vehicle by going on and on the way he did on the call. Um, so I don't know what part of the valuation of the company right now is resting on this vehicle. I don't think it's a lot. We should probably try to just, like, imagine how this could work out, just because just you never know. I mean, like, maybe 
uh, it turns out that some of these things that are so difficult to manufacture actually do have a lot of utility. You could imagine, right? Uh, uh, fleets do care about paying for gas. You know, maybe a lot of these trips are short. Maybe there are ways that this is more practical than we're anticipating. Mm. And also, maybe you know, there were a lot of Hummers sold uh, in the uh, in the nineties. Tons. And and maybe this does capture the imagination in a way that you know becomes a, a cultural icon. But then you're back to this problem of okay, well now you have to manufacture them. You gotta if you, you gotta make them. Yeah, and my whole thing, just just to be clear on the utility, it's not that the Cybertruck doesn't have utility. It's like I've had friends who've tried to get me, convince me to buy. Didn't Jeep come out with some sort of the snazzy, gladiator? The gladiator. And my point to them was very simply, I'm not going to pay the premium for the look in the statement, right? Like there's a whole like hipster value to it that no, I just want the utility of the truck. And so you know that w- what does this Cybertruck even? Max, you're entertained I'm by that. I'm just laughing. You're, you're, I, I, I was wondering when you brought up the question of who are the, the, the real truck guys versus yeah. the posers, which category you were in. I'm glad to know. Clearly, I'm a real truck guy. But what, what is the price we tag we don't on know. this thing? I mean, there? that's the other thing that's, that's bananas. We don't know the price. We don't know the battery range. We don't have any real specs in terms of just like a lot of things. Okay, so listen, final little bonus segment here. As these cyber trucks are released into the wild, I'm going to ask you guys who among us, including our good friend Sarah Fryer, uh, is most likely to first hop behind the wheel? Max. I, I think it's me, unfortunately, just because. Mad Max. I think Max I'm the only the one Max who's truck. willing to admit that I sometimes think about pickup trucks and not for utility reasons because okay. I think they're cool. You want to be and cool. You want to be a badass. I want to be a cool man with a pickup truck. Cigar in your mouth. Uh, this is probably a thing that Odyssey drivers, you know, just yeah. go through. Uh, so it's, mine's okay. a 2019. Probably when you get to your third or fourth year with the Odyssey, you, you start to think about pickup trucks. And that's me right now. You got young kids. You still in, embrace that. All right, Dana. If it's not Max, who is it? Or or do you too say Max? Yeah, I could see Max. I could see Max going for it. You know, it fits his brand. Mad Max gets the Cybertruck. I could see him doing a story. He's going to drive across the country in it. You know, maybe take the kids to some national parks. I could see it. I would also say Max as well, because yeah, because he's he's just got that. He's got that desire to be cool. So. Well, I, I I outed myself as not a real truck guy. Also, this is correct. And and so you know, but that is if there are enough. Max Chapkins out there in the United States of America, this thing is going to be an enormous isn't hit. It, isn't there what's what's that old like stereotype about men having their midlife crisis and they buy? Is it a is it a Maserati or a Ferrari? Like what's isn't maybe this is the new maybe this is the new midlife crisis car for a certain kind of man. All right, thanks for listening to Elon Inc. and thanks to our muscologists, Dana, Max. Great to be here. Always a pleasure. This episode was produced by Stacey Wong. Naomi Shaven and Rehan Harmansi are our senior editors. The idea for this very show also came from Rehan. Blake Maples handles engineering and we get special editing assistance from Jeff Grocott. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen. Thanks a bunch to Businessweek editor Joel Weber. The Elon Inc. theme is written and performed by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiyura. Sage Bauman is the head of Bloomberg Podcast and our executive producer. If you have a minute, rate and review our show. It'll help other listeners find us. I am David Papadopoulos. See you next week.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.